0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 11, another psalm of David to the choir master, meaning that it's given to us um, specifically for the purpose of of corporate worship as God's people gather together. This uh, individual psalm is to become a psalm of all God's people. Uh, Psalm 11 is found on page 533 in your pew Bibles. We'll read these seven verses. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. A couple of years ago, in the midst of everything that's been going on in the world with marriage and gender and religious freedom, I remember one pastor saying to his fellow pastors at the start of a new year, "What our, our people need most?" Is to be taught how to suffer and to be taught to love the Psalms. And to be taught how to suffer and to be taught to love the Psalms. It might seem like a somewhat surprising statement, a somewhat simple statement. I think it's a good statement. Because what the Psalms teach us to do in the midst of the crumbling foundations around us is to look to the Lord in whom we find refuge to suffer faithfully like David and the one to whom David points and entrust our cause to God. John Calvin said, The Psalms principally train us to bear our cross. They teach us to follow our crucified king in his pattern of cross-shaped obedience and look to the Lord in whom we find refuge. There may be certain psalms that you find it odd to sing, uh, things that it doesn't uh, feel like are the most relevant at this moment in your life, psalms about suffering, uh, psalms of lament, psalms of justice. Uh, But aside from the fact this is one of the ways we intercede for our brothers and sisters throughout the world, I think there may come a time, whether in five years or 50, when some of these psalms do not feel so Irrelevant. But as the church in the West becomes more and more marginalized, she will find in the Psalms God-given words for a church under the cross. And so she would do well to learn them now. But as long as the church continues to neglect them in in favor of contemporary choruses that lack the, the depth and breadth of the Psalms, we impoverish ourselves. Bonhoeffer, who knew something about suffering, said, Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. But with its recovery will come unsuspected power. By God's grace, I think there's been something of a renewal in the last several years in in the church, not just the the Reformed tradition, but the church throughout the world, and and understanding the, the importance of the Psalms. And I would suggest that this comes at just the right time as the foundations around us are, um, at least people are attempting to destroy them. But the Psalms teach us that our response is neither to compromise and assimilate, nor is it to pick up our swords and fight. It's not to run to the mountains and flee, but to share in the suffering of our crucified king and look to God for refuge. That's what we see this morning in Psalm 11, that when the foundations are being destroyed, the response of faith is not to flee or fight, but to look to the one who fights for us. We're going to see this morning in Psalm 11, the kind of advice that faith sometimes hears in the midst of the trials we face, the answer faith gives now, the assurance faith holds. I've taken those three points from Dale Ralph Davis. The advice faith hears, the answer faith gives. The assurance faith holds in the midst of the crumbling foundations of a society that will not have God rule over them. I don't know the precise context in which David wrote this psalm, as is the case with many of the psalms. But what we do know is that the wicked are bending the bow at him. They have fitted the arrow in the string to to shoot in the dark, at the upright in heart, and the foundations are being destroyed. Foundations meaning either the the people or the, the principles that are meant to ensure justice. There has been a complete overthrow of the institutions and principles that maintain order. So that in David's day, evil is being called good, and good is being called evil. The righteous are being persecuted, while the wicked prosper. And so the people who, who are advising David say, what can the righteous do? I, I should mention, if you're, if you're not following along in the ESV, if you have the New King James in front of you, I think the uh, quotation marks there are, are misplaced. The quotation, as it has in the ESV, begins at flee like a bird to your mountain and goes all the way to the end of verse three. And so that's, that's the advice that David's uh, counselors or advisors are giving him. They're, they're saying, what can the righteous do that the foundations are being destroyed? Our only hope is to flee like a bird to the mountain." to fly away and protect ourselves, for what else can the righteous do? They don't see any way but escape. These appear to be well-meaning counselors who who are sympathetic to David's cause. They they see the ways that he's suffering, and they with him, and say, look, David, they, they shoot in the dark. They aim their bow at us. Justice is being overthrown. It would be best for you to get somewhere safe. Abandon the work that God has given you, so we can just survive. And you can see how this might be appealing. You can see how it's still appealing. The world around us is undermining the institutions and, and principles that maintain justice. Life is no longer protected, but the most vulnerable among us are being aborted or euthanized in the name of medical assistance. Parental rights are being overridden. Basic things like what is a man or what is a woman can no longer be answered, Bible is considered hate speech, anyone who doesn't buy into modern theories about gender is, is homophobic and needs to be canceled, the church, the Bible, conservative values are being squeezed to the margins, and it can be tempting to flee, but to move away from civilization, protect ourselves and our children, live off the grid, and hide from a world that doesn't respect our values. This is the kind of thing that David is being tempted to do. And it's what continues to have appeal for people even today. Wouldn't it be best to just flee, that the foundations are being destroyed? What can the righteous do but fly away like a bird, withdraw from mainline society, and flee to the mountains? Of course, the problem with that is you can't be the light of the world when you cut yourself off from the world. I'd suggest this is the problem with the Amish or Mennonite concept. This is uh, the problem with with what's called the American Redoubt, the call for conservative Christians to migrate en masse to Idaho and the Pacific Northwest with the goal of survival and resistance. It may sound appealing, but it comes at a cost. And for David too, fleeing may have sounded appealing, it may have had its advantages, but it too came at a cost. It came at the cost of him abandoning his post as God's king. And so though he hears this advice from well-meaning counselors who wish him well, he says, how can you say that to my soul? In the Lord I take refuge. Not in fleeing like, like a bird to the mountain, but in persevering in my role of costly kingship not retreating to a Christian ghetto where I can hide from the world around me, but persevering in the public work of the kingdom. Sometimes though fleeing may be easier, it's not what's best. And so faith calls us to evaluate the advice that we're given, even the advice that we're given by well-meaning friends and trusted counselors to discern whether withdrawing from a situation from a time is wise and prudent or whether it's motivated by an ungodly fear. And may lead to our light being hidden under a bushel. I'm reminded of, of Matthew chapter 5. we in those Beatitudes in the first 12 verses. Jesus calls us to an otherworldly ethic. But, but then he says just after that, I want you to be otherworldly for the world. He doesn't say, follow me so we can build a monastery in the desert or a secluded settlement in rural Pennsylvania, but I want you to be in the world for the world, not hiding your light under a bushel. Not abdicating your responsibility by hiding out as if self-preservation is the most important thing, but being willing to stand out in the midst of a godless culture that hates you. And not only did Christ call his people to do that, in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's what Christ himself did as the fulfillment of the Sermon on the Mount. There were many times when when this same kind of counsel that is here given to David was given to Christ. But he too said, how can you say that to my soul? We can think of Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And and the common thread that runs throughout those temptations that Satan places before him is avoiding suffering to to, uh, seize the the comfort of the crown. Or Luke chapter 13. um, Jesus in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, it says that he has set his face toward Jerusalem. And as the narrative progresses, um, all from, from chapters 9 to 19, it keeps reminding us he was on his way toward Jerusalem. He was on his way toward Jerusalem. But then in Luke 13, as Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, going there to die, he's told in Luke thirteen thirty one, Jesus, you better get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Don't keep going to Jerusalem. Herod wants to have your head. But Jesus says, tell that fox that I must go on my way and finish my course, for it cannot be that a prophet would die outside Jerusalem. Or John chapter 11. Even his well-meaning disciples say to him in verse 8, Jesus, we cannot go to Judea, for the Jews there just tried to stone you. Why would we go there again? But Jesus isn't deterred. Nor is he, when Peter in Matthew 16 says, Far be it from you, Lord, you shall not die. But Christ, recognizing that same voice from Matthew 4 in the wilderness, says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking the things of God, but the things of man. In none of these four instances does Jesus flee and abandon his post, his call to costly kingship, but he entrusts himself to God. And that's what David does here as a type of the one to come. He doesn't abandon his mission. He doesn't abandon his call to costly kingship, even when wicked men bend their bow at him. And as his faithful subjects feel the hatred that is aimed not only at their king, but also at them because of their their, um, commitment to him, he calls them not to flee or hide, but to take refuge in God. Not abandon their post, but persevere in the public work of the kingdom. And the same goes for us. Not to cut ourselves off from the world or or seek to be so separate from it that we are not a blessing to it, but to press on even when the moral foundations of society appear to be collapsing. Not running away to a monastery in the desert, fleeing like a bird to the mountain. But Calvin says, this verse teaches us that however much the world may hate and persecute us, we must nevertheless continue steadfastly at our post. And however much and however long we may be harassed ought always to continue firm and unwavering. Now, that's not to say that there won't be times where it may be better to withdraw from a particular situation But it is to say we must seek to discern whether our desire for self-preservation is being elevated too highly and whether we're seeking to be faithful in the call that we have to be salt and light in the place where God has put us as we share in the suffering of our King. Faith must seek to discern the advice that it hears and ask whether it's taking refuge in God like David in verse 1 whether it's perhaps taking refuge in a change in circumstance that may be self-focused and self-concerned. Commentator Gerald Wilson says, we we flee when we're concerned about protecting ourselves. By contrast, the kind of refuge that God offers calls us to give ourselves away. Taking refuge in God is other-focused holding on to God by letting go of self and thinking instead of others, actively seeking to alleviate the pain of others around us rather than just to escape it ourselves. We need to be ready to speak words of truth, comfort, and hope in chaotic settings of doom and gloom rather than withdrawing into self-serving fantasies of a better world for the faithful. And what allows us to do this with confidence, we see in verses 4 through 7, And the answer that faith gives. Um, David rejects this advice to flee like a bird to the mountain for three reasons. uh, Because God rules, because God sees, and because God will judge. Notice in verse 4 how he speaks of God ruling. If you can recall from two weeks ago when we consider that theme in in Psalms 9 and 10 of God, the just king of heaven, ruling. Here he's returning to that same theme of of how God rules in heaven. You saw all over those two Psalms as, as the wicked oppressed David and his faithful followers, his hope and his confidence, were in the fact that God is the king who sits enthroned in heaven. So now, in the very next psalm, which which is placed in the Psalter next to it, so we might see those themes together, he returns to that theme in verse 4 and says, the Lord is in his holy temple, his throne is in heaven. By the way, when it refers to him being in his holy temple, um, the, the temple hasn't yet been constructed, and so David is not referring to an earthly temple, he's referring to God's temple in heaven. That which Hebrews tells us the earthly temple is a shadow and picture of. So God is sitting on the throne of his temple in heaven. This actually reminds us a little bit of what David already said in Psalm 2. Where as David looked around at at the nations or looked ahead to the nations, raging and plotting in vain against the Lord and his anointed. He then comforted himself by saying, the Lord who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. In the midst of the foundations being destroyed, in the midst of the institutions and and people who bring justice being overthrown and undermined, David reminds himself of that same truth of Psalm 2, that God is in heaven and he rules. There is an implied contrast here between heaven and earth. On earth, the wicked seem to be doing whatever they want, but in heaven, God rules. Again, Calvin says, if, if David's attention had been, fixed solely on, had been fixed solely on the state of the things in this world, as our attention often is, then he would have seen no prospect of deliverance from his present peril. This is not what David did. On the contrary, when in the world all justice lies trodden underfoot and and faithfulness has perished, he reflects that God sits in heaven and he looks to him for the restoration of order from this state of miserable confusion. He does not simply say that, that God dwells in heaven, but that he reigns in heaven there as in a royal palace and has his throne of judgment there. The same throne of judgment from Psalm 10 from which all the afflicted and oppressed found comfort. Calvin says, When deceit, treachery, cruelty, violence, and extortion reign in the world, in short, when all things are thrown into disorder and into darkness by injustice, let faith serve as a lamp to enable us to behold God's heavenly throne and let that suffice to make us wait in patience For the restoration of things to a better state. He's saying God's rule from heaven is our comfort in the midst of calamity. And the fact that He is, as we confess in Lord's Day 10, providentially governing all things, not only as our King, but also as our Father. That's the one who providentially governs all things. David reminds us that God not only rules, but he also sees. We find this at the end of verse 4. It says that his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man. It's interesting that that reference to eyelids may actually be uh, playing on the fact that back in Psalm 10, that the wicked thought that God did not see. Uh, perhaps they thought that he, he was asleep on the job, that his eyelids were closed. But even when his eyelids appear to be closed from our earthly vantage point, he does see and he will bring justice. And God suspends judgment for a time. This is the truth that we lean upon, that he beholds from heaven. Just as we now see David here comforting himself with this consolation alone that God rules over mankind, that he sees everything that happens in this world, although his knowledge and his exercise of justice might not at first be apparent, might not always feel like God sees, but he does. And the God who rules and the God who sees will bring justice. That's the third part of the answer that faith gives when the foundations are being destroyed and we're tempted to flee, that God will judge. And this again reminds us of Psalm 1. Remember back in Psalm 1, that both the wicked and the righteous will stand before God and the Lord knows the way of them both. And so David and his faithful followers here in Psalm 11 are are to find comfort in verse 5, that the Lord tests the righteous, that he sees them, that he knows their way. But they're also to find comfort in verse 6, that the one who loves violence, the ones who bend the bow at God's king and hate his kingdom, Those who seek to overthrow justice and slaughter the unborn and rebel against God's created order and and torment the church as she protests this, God will bring judgment. And the way that that judgment is is described in verse 6 calls to mind the, the, the story of Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. That fire and sulfur coming down. Or it reminds us of Psalm 1 with that scorching wind recalling Psalm 1-4, that the wicked are like chaff, that the wind will blow away, will drive away in judgment. And so what David does here and what he teaches us to do is is to recall these past acts of redemptive history like Sodom and Gomorrah and, and to recall the redemptive historical truth of Psalm 1 and plead upon God's past acts and present promises believing that the God who rules in heaven and sees injustice will do right. That the king is a just king. Unlike many of the kings of this world. And will one day break into human history as the judge of all the earth, and the portion of the wicked will be God's cup of wrath. David says, That's why I don't have to flee. That, by the way, is also why he doesn't have to fight back himself. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The future hope that has been expressed in Psalm 1 and and Psalm 2 and Psalm 10, David returns to again and says, I know that the Lord will bring justice. For verse 7, the Lord is righteous and loves righteous deeds. He doesn't love the, the, the uh, unjust deeds of those who seek to overthrow the very order of creation. Those in, uh, as we sang from Psalm 119, who, who seek to, to overthrow that which is firmly fixed in the heavens. He doesn't side with them. But the Lord is righteous and loves righteous deeds. And David says his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And so the church can be sure in the midst of the trials of this life that are inflicted by those who who seek to destroy the very foundations of justice, the church can be sure that there is a just king in heaven who rules, who sees, and who will bring justice. And it is not wrong for us to pray for this justice. As David models for us in verse 6. In fact, this is the way that he takes refuge in God, verse 1. By praying, verse 6, by praying that thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven where the king of heaven rules. This prayer is a prayer for for kingdom come, which is confirmed by the way that Revelation actually picks up on Psalm 11. Remember that passage that we read last Sunday afternoon where it says, um, uh, God says of that lake outside the heavenly city that lake that is the fate of the wicked, that it will burn with fire and sulfur, hearkening back to the very language of verse 6 of our psalm. Revelation 19, verse 20, it describes that lake in the same way. In Revelation 20, fire and sulfur. And so the image here from Psalm 11 becomes stock imagery for eternal judgment. David is looking ahead and praying, like the psalmist in, in Psalm 73 and many other psalms, for the day when the King of heaven will execute justice on behalf of his people for the glory of his name. It is saying to his well meaning counselors, I don't have to flee like a bird to the mountain because justice is coming. The foundations are being destroyed. What can the righteous do but look to the Lord who is their refuge? We don't need to flee. We don't need to go and set up our own little kingdom on earth for God's heavenly kingdom will one day come down and the wicked will no longer bend the bow. The foundations will no longer be destroyed, but he'll establish a city that has nothing unclean or detestable or, or false that will ever enter into it and its foundations, as we read last week from Revelation 21, will be unshakable. And it is that positive vision of this heavenly city that David the prophet holds out for us in the last part of verse 7. Or in response to the advice faith hears, having shown us the answer faith gives, he now encourages us with the assurance faith holds that the upright shall behold God's face. James Montgomery Boyce calls this an anticipation of nothing less than the beatific vision, the ultimate aspiration of God's people to see him face to face. Although the Old Testament understanding of the future was was somewhat dim, here faith breaks through the night and consoles itself with a vision of the future, beholding the face of God. It is this vision, beloved, that, that gives us strength, When we face the cruel darts and destroyers of verse 2. That we will behold God's face. That we are fated for fellowship before the face of God. Bound for a future of fullness and joy in the presence of the King who reigns in love over his people. That's where this psalm takes us at its end. To look forward to that heavenly hope. When... A pastor describes this with the story of a man named William Dyke, a man who was blinded early in his life by an accident, yet uh, met a girl who he he courted, and eventually she agreed to marry him. And just shortly before the wedding, uh, William came in contact with a surgeon who thought that he might be able to, to help recover Dyke's sight. And so surgery was performed. In the day of the wedding, the bandages were removed from his eyes, and he beheld his bride for the very first time. A moment of joy, and yet in one sense, simply the fulfillment of all that had gone before. He had already held her hand. He'd already heard her voice. He had already prized her love, and now he beheld her face. And yet loved her even before he saw her. And it's the same for the Christian. Though we have not seen him, as Peter reminds us in his epistle, we love him. And the sight is one day coming where we will behold our bridegroom and our king. As we heard last week from Revelation 22, we will see his face. And it's this beatific vision that we need to remember when we're tempted to throw in the towel or abandon our post and flee like a bird to the mountain. There's coming a day when, like the disciples, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'll behold the glory of his face. And it's that bright future that encourages God's people to press on in the darkness of the night of Psalm 11, verse 2, because morning is coming, and the Son of Righteousness will rise and that the foundations are being destroyed, the hope of the righteous is that the king will come to bring justice and will behold his face. That's why that pastor advised his fellow ministers that what God's people need when the foundations of morality and justice are being destroyed is the Psalms. Because it is in the Psalms that we're given a vision in the darkness of the night of the brightness of beholding his face and of beholding his justice, Christ the King who will make all things new, Christ the King who even holds out this hope to those who are at present his enemies. Remember, we've seen this already in in Psalm 2 and Psalm 7, how, how often in the midst of these warnings of judgment in the Psalms, God's anointed king gives these invitations to repent. In fact, we heard one of them in our call to worship. Where those kings and rulers of the earth who plot in vain against him are invited to come and find refuge in him, to kiss the sun, find refuge from judgment by coming to him. I think we see um, something like that in this Psalm too, as, as the New Testament actually picks up some of this imagery from verse six when Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, that he will be baptized with a baptism of judgment and will drink the cup of God's wrath. He's alluding back to this dual image from Psalm 11:6, of judgment reigning on the wicked and the wrath of God being their cup. Jesus in Mark 10 and Matthew 20 says that he will take the place of the wicked so that the judgment which should befall them would befall him. That as they repent of their sins and look to him, kissing the Son, as it says in Psalm 2, they too might find refuge on the day of wrath. Allowing us to see this psalm not just as good news for the righteous, but even good news for the wicked if they turn to him. This is why Christ was so committed to to staying his course. This is why he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem because he was going there to experience the judgment that God's enemies in this psalm deserve so that they might behold his face. So that we might behold his face. This is why he couldn't abandon his role of costly kingship because his love for the world so motivated him to be baptized with this judgment and drink this cup so that we might drink the cup not of God's wrath, but of God's blessing. The same cup that we'll drink of this afternoon. A foretaste of the cup that we'll drink in glory when we'll behold his face as we feast with him there. The vats will overflow with wine. This is why Christ stayed the course and didn't flee like a bird to his mountain. This is why David stayed the course and didn't flee like a bird to the mountain because he was a type of the one who would come from his line and be pierced with that arrow of verse 2. It experienced that that dark night of of verse 2 so that the world who hated him might be blessed through him. And that's why we follow Christ in the public work of the kingdom, not retreating into a monastery. in The mountains where the foundations are being destroyed, but proclaiming this very news, that the king from David's line has come, absorbing the very wrath of this psalm that God's enemies deserve, drinking his cup of wrath so that we might drink his cup of blessing and being the object of God's frown on the cross so that we might behold the smile of his face. That's the good news that we're called to proclaim in this world and that I proclaim to you this day. That for all who trust in Christ, this is our portion. But for those who continue to make war against him, you will reap at the consummation the divine judgment for which the psalmist here prays. So come, like David invites us in Psalm 1, and take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that every one of us would indeed kiss the Son, the one who bore the judgment of verse 6, that we might behold your face in verse 7. And we pray that the good news of what Christ has done would so motivate us to stay at our post in difficult circumstances, seeking to witness to what Christ has done for the blessing even of the world around us who seeks to destroy the foundations of your word. We thank you for how David and how Christ persevered in their call to costly kingship. We pray that you'd train us by this psalm to bear our cross with him. I'm patiently awaiting the crown, of verse 7. Help us to see from a psalm like this that our uh, situation is not so unique to what we find in the history of God's people. The experiences that we have where it feels like the foundations are being destroyed or where we're tempted to flee. These are not unique. The challenges that your people have faced in David's day and ever since. I pray that you'd help us to find comfort, though, in David's words, which are ultimately the words of Christ. that you'd help us to take refuge in them and refuge in you. Even when it appears that foundations of justice and morality are being undermined and overthrown. Lord, we thank you that you are in your holy temple and your throne is in heaven, from which we await a savior. And so we pray even, so come, Lord Jesus.